Daniel Radcliffe. What? What? Daniel Radcliffe. What? Sorry, wrong show. What? Jimmy Fallon. That's Jimmy Fallon. Did Daniel Radcliffe rap on? Yeah, he's kind of into rap. I've heard that before. Oh, he killed it. He did a uh, black list in his uh, alphabet aerobics. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. Yeah, he did that entire thing. <laughs> word for word. Uh, I've heard him interviewed where he where he did where he talked about how he loves he loves American football and he loves rap and he so he's kind so of an interesting guy. Anyway, I'm kind of interested in he's gonna he plays this really terrible ma- magician in the next Now You See Me movie that's coming out and I'm like really excited about it. There's another one coming. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same girl. I thought it was. Yeah, it was one of the. Are you kidding me? I thought it was. How would you say that? I'm out. I'm out. You replace redheaded genius with Daniel Radcliffe. I'm out. You may call me. Anyway. Anyway. All right, let's turn to a let's turn to Ephesians chapter four, and we'll see what happens. It's more ginger discrimination. That's all I have to say. I'm not okay with it. Or what? Congratulations. You're an honored family. Yeah. Yeah. First order. What? The first order. Bill Weasley, Bill Weasley from Harry Potter is the redheaded Nazi from the Yes, I know. Yeah. Yeah, He's the redheaded yeah, Nazi. Yeah, uh, There are so many people in that. Like, I did not realize it was Simon Pegg who did the one quarter portion guy. I did, totally didn't get that. I usually, I usually, if it's if it's like somebody's voice, I'm usually like, that's this person. But I totally missed it. I heard about it later, but I didn't really. I recognized his voice when he started talking, and I was like, I know that voice, but it didn't click with me. Maybe that's because James Bond doesn't do a lot of talking. He just talks with his fists <laughs> and his little gun. I took my PlayStation 4 and other things. Anyway, and his bow tie. Okay, let's let's actually pray so we can get into this since we're all off on. All right. Oh, Father, I love you. I thank you that even the silliness of our of of our world that you. Uh, you, you fill culture. So I just I thank you for that. I, I, I just, I know that you smile on even silly conversations. You love your kids. And so Lord, I pray that as we open up this, the next chapter of this book, that you would speak deep to us. And I pray that you would um, help us to hear your voice and that we would receive something eternal from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm trying to think back to the... The end of Ephesians chapter 3 is one of the guitar solos of the New Testament, okay? Um, it's, it's, this, it's, it's one of the face-melting guitar solos of the, of the New Testament. It's, it's right in there with Romans chapter 8, you know? It's, it's, it's one of those, those moments in Scripture where you're just like, ah! you know, it's, oh, it's amazing! And, and so I absolutely love it. And it's that prayer, it's that thundering prayer of the Apostle Paul's that we prayed this morning in, in devotions. Um, you know, that God, and 
that last phrase of the prayer. We actually didn't talk about it last last time, um, but uh, but it's huge. Is he who is able to do more than we could ask, imagine, or think? To him be the glory forever. That is unbelievable. Paul was like, we're asking him to do massive, unbelievable thing by revealing his love to us, but he's able to do more than we could ever ask. And, and that, I love that. That's, that's huge. That's just the great, like, you know, at the end of the guitar solo, they take the guitar and smash it on the ground. You know, that's what that, that's what that is. So it's tough to follow that up, but this chapter is really deep and really rich. And I don't know that I've spent, I've ever spent as much time with it as I have in the last few days as I've really been preparing for this. And I really like this chapter. This is, this is good stuff. So get ready for it. Um, so it's out of that prayer. Paul says, therefore, remember once again, whenever you see a therefore or because of that or any of that, yes, when you see a therefore, what is it there for? Don't forget to ask that question. Ask that question every single time. Read the few verses before it. Follow the line of thinking that has brought you to this place. And be careful with Paul because he's ADD and he will say something in verse 1 and then, and then go off on a complete different tangent and then 12 verses later come back to what he started in verse 1. And if you're not careful, you will miss the thread of the thought. So pay attention. Okay. Everything, context is everything. All the time. Context is how we understand what the writer is trying to say. You need to know who he's writing to you, who he's writing to. You need to know what he's writing about. You need to know what his original intent was. Because even though it's been 2,000 years, what he meant to say then is what he means to say now. And we don't get to change the meaning of it just because it's been 2,000 years. What he meant to say then is what he means to say now. And we have to find that meaning so that we can actually apply it to our lives, which are very different than theirs, but in a lot of ways, not different at all. Okay, There are eternal things in these scriptures, and we have to find them. We have to bring them in. That's why it's important that you pay attention to the original language. That's why it's important that you pay attention to all of these details surrounding every verse because it is very easy to take verses completely out of context and make them mean something that they do not mean. Context is everything. I'm going to preach that forever. You've got to. We need to know what it actually says. This is life-giving stuff. We've got to be solid with it. We have to know what it means. I can't tell you how many times I was sitting and I listened to a preacher say some verse to, you know, they don't often preach like that as their primary text and take it out of context doing it that way. Usually the, the way it happens most often is when they're talking about something else and they use a text to kind of add to their discussion. So they just kind of, you know, run and, and take it completely out of context when they do that. And it just, it makes me mad. It really does. As, as a preacher, as a teacher of God's word, when I hear the word used out of context, I want to throw tomatoes. You know, I'm just like, you hack! You know, it's I'm just like, don't, this, the word of God is precious. Don't treat it like, you know, some kind of paperback novel you found in the grocery store. Bible is in no way teeny bopperish. Anyway, okay. <laughs>
You okay over there? <laughs> All right. Therefore, what is it there for? What verse? This is verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. This is this statement is being made in view of the overwhelming revelation of the love of God toward us. So off of that, that's our launching pad for this next chapter. God revealing his love to his church. Okay, that's, launch, that's our launching pad. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I implore you. Again, he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. He wrote this while he was in prison. He talks about his chains, talks about them. Those chains, are actually, they actually belong to Christ. They're not the world's. The world thinks they have him in prison. The truth is Jesus has him there. And he's totally excited about God's will for his life. I just think that's amazing. Some of the best writing that Paul ever did, he did out of a jail cell. I think that's fascinating. So, um, i got to ignore my wife. She's not asking about anything important. Um, <laughs> Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So implore you, first of all. This word implore, I looked up the original language. It's so massively important that you do that. One of my favorite places to do Bible study is BibleHub.org. Okay? And the reason it is that is because you can look at a couple different translations where if you just put your cursor over the word, it will tell you, it'll show you the, defin the original definition. And then you can just click on the word and it'll take you to that page in Strong's uh, Concordance. So you can see all the other places that it was used. You can see, you know, the different uh, dimensions of meaning that belong to that word. You can see the other places. When you're looking at a word, okay, when you do a word study, it is especially important to pay attention to the way that the same author has used that word in other places. Okay? Now, it is important to see how that word is used across the New Testament. But what gives you the best understanding of what one specific author means by that word, you can look to see how that author has used that word in the past. Because that will give you a really good idea of what they actually mean by it. This is, anytime you translate a word from one language to another you're going to lose some of the meaning. And we want to get as much of that back as we can. So that's what we're doing. So therefore, I implore you. That word implore, it is, this, it, it is related to the word that we, that we use when we talk about Jesus being the comforter, or uh, the Holy Spirit being the comforter. It's related to the word paraclete. Okay? And the idea here is that, he's, that you're running in a race and he's, he's pulling up alongside you going, you can do this, you can do this, handing you your water, you know? You can just keep going, keep going. It's that idea. This isn't a, oh my gosh, would you please? No. This is somebody who's in this race with you. He's supporting you. He's walking with you. And he's saying, come on, you can do this. And that's, that's the tone, okay? It's a, it's, a, it's a we're in this together and I know you can do it kind of tone. So hear that this way. Don't hear this as like a guilt trip coming down from some guy that thinks he's better than you. And this is somebody that's in this with you and saying, I believe in you and I know you can do it. I implore you, you can do it. Okay, come along. He's coming alongside to encourage you. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. 
just ask that God would give you a, 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 a divine Holy Spirit revelation of the love of God. Okay? That's the prayer that he just prayed for you. Now he's saying, now that you have tasted and seen the love of God, I want you to let that be reflected in who you are. It's just what we were talking about this morning with Pastor Ron devotions. That it is out of our experience of God's love that our that who we are and what we do is formed. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. Walk like you were just shown the love of God. Walk that out. Live that out in a manner worthy. Now, when he says the calling with which you've been called, do not hear in that sentence the uh, vocational calling, like you've been called to be a pastor, you've been called to be a... That is not... That is not what he's talking about. Okay, that's not how. That's not the word. That's not the. It's not what we're talking about. He's talking about when Jesus called you out of darkness into light. That's the calling he's talking about. And actually, every place in this chapter that talks about calling, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about your the thing that God wants you to do with your life. That's not it. He's talking about your salvation. Walk in a manner worthy of what Jesus paid to bring you in. Okay, when we have to have the cross in view all the time and let that shape who we are and what we do. Okay, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love is verse two. So he's giving you instruction now. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And this is what that looks like. With humility. Philippians 2.3 um, is the, another place where this exact word idea is used. And it says there, esteem others better than yourself. Humility. Where you're not coming into any situation thinking you're better than anybody else because you are not. Where we are coming to the equation every single time we're coming into this being you know, we're the low person in the, we want to take the low road, taking the view of a servant. Just, you know, Jesus came, wrapped the towel around himself and washed their feet. That is, that's how we need to think of ourselves every time we walk into a situation. No matter how high you rise, no matter how much ministry you do, no matter if the entire world knows your name, you should walk into every room thinking, how do I serve the people in this room? How do I honor the worth that Jesus has put in them? How do I love these people sacrificially? That's just how we should be. That's why pastors that refuse to set up chairs need to be fired. And truly. If you're not willing to clean the toilet, then you should not be willing to preach in the pulpit. That's just the way it is. We are a people... The greatest in this kingdom is the one who serves the most people. That's what Jesus said. When we live our, our lives that way, oh, I didn't write down who said this, but I have a quote here. It says, without arrogance, pride, or a spirit of dictation, I think this is Calvin, that sounds like him, without a desire to lord it over God's heritage, without being elated with the authority of the apostolic office, 
the, ver- the variety of miracles with which he was enabled to perform or the success which attended his labors. What an admir- admirable model for all who are in ministry, for all who are endowed with talents and learning, for all who meet with remarkable success in their work. The proper effect of such success and of such talent will be to produce true humility. The greatest endowments are usually connected with the most simple and childlike humility. Jesus, the creator of everything that exists, came and was spit upon by the lowest of the low. He washed the feet of smelly fishermen. He spent his time with the poor, the broken, the sick, and the hurting. He didn't go. The king of the universe didn't visit the emperor's house. He was born and put in a feed trough. in the most backward nation in the world at that time. Pay attention. This is who Jesus is. This is who he calls us to be. means that we can be happy and content when we're not in control or steering things our way. That's a pretty big one. With all humility, he says. And gentleness. This is the same word as meekness. And it's not a word that we use a lot. I think most people think it, oh, to be meek means to be like a wallflower, to be a person who is uh, like, you know, embarrassed or kind of just doesn't speak up often. That's not what meekness means. So if somebody, if, if, if that's the picture you get when you hear meekness, that's wrong. The picture I want you to to think of is the most muscly guy you can imagine holding a little puppy and being gentle with him because that's what meekness is. It's power being restrained. That's, that's how, that's what the word meekness means. Just massive power held in reserve out of care for the one they're handling. That's what meekness means. And this word gentle, this translated gentleness is the exact same word used in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Which, by the way, Jesus did not come up with that all on his own. That's that He was quoting Psalm 25. Almost all of the Beatitudes can be found in the Old Testament. Check it out. It's real. Jesus was teaching the Bible. <laughs> That's what he was doing. He was reminding the Jewish people of the verses they forgot. easy to do. I read a post yesterday. It's like seven verses most Christians forget or something like that, and they were really rough. Like, oh, sucker punch. Like each one just like push right to the gut. We should ex- like stuff like we should expect, you know, uh, suffering. Stuff like, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, you'd have to go find it, but it's, it was really good. Meekness means to bear injury without anger or desire for revenge. Think of Jesus being nailed to the cross saying, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the stars into place, the one who shouted and mountains erupted from the ocean, that one, Genesis 1 God, okay, is having his arms 
pierced by nails, rusty Roman nails, and he says, in that place, he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. That's the picture of meekness. The one who could have, by blinking, okay, he could have just blinked his eye and obliterated, you know, made, made all of Israel just, uh, uh, you know, wiped off the face of the planet by a thought. In fact, the, the, he doesn't have to, he exerts power to keep things around. All he has to do is stop keeping them around and they will no longer exist. That's what the Bible says. It is by the word of his power that all things hold together and consist. The universe exists because God is actually actively keeping it together. He doesn't have to exert power to destroy it. He just has to stop exerting the power that he's exerting to keep it in, in existence. At any moment, he could just say, whoop, and you would cease to exist. Your molecules and atoms would fly apart at the seams, and no, there would be nothing left of you. It is grace that you even breathe a breath. We've got to get our heads around that. That's how powerful he is, and yet he allowed us to kill him. Unbelievable, but true. And it should show us what meekness really looks like. That's meekness. You know, it's like me wrestling with my, you know, my daughter. Okay, There's no physical way that she hurt me. I mean, it's just not possible. And I could rip her arms out of their sockets and beat her over the head with them if I wanted to. I told her, I mean, I couldn't. She's, 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 you know, tiny and fragile. I could, I could easily, easily harm her. Okay. But, but, you know, I let her throw me on the ground and kick me in the head, you know, and it's like, ah, ah stop, you know, that's meekness. That's what I'm talking about. Meekness is power held in reserve. We have to, especially for those of you that feel like God is calling you into a place of leadership in the body of Christ, you have to remember this. Leadership in the body of Christ does not power up, does not declare their title, I am the pastor! Give me a break. <laughs> right? That's not what leadership in the kingdom of, of heaven, that's not what it looks like. Leadership in the kingdom of heaven does not exert force to, a, to, to that is not, no, leadership in the kingdom of heaven invites people into cooperation through serving them. Leadership in the kingdom of heaven is laying down your life so that others can reach their fullest potential. That means that, yes, even though you could sing that solo better than someone that you're training to sing it, they need to sing it and not you. That means that even though you could preach the sermon ten times better than the young man or the young woman <laughs> that you're training up to preach the sermon, you need to let them preach it. That's what leadership in the kingdom does. It doesn't lord anything over anybody. It doesn't hold, you know, that you guys know what the sword of Damocles is. It doesn't hold the sword of Damocles over their heads saying, you better do this or I'm going to kill you. So many people have that image of God, that God's like, you behave or I will destroy you. It is, that is not God. That is not God at all. The Bible says that ki his kindness leads us to repentance. Not his threats. 
meekness. It's the mark of Jesus. And when I see a leader who is powering up or who is threatening or who is being, then I just, I'm just like, I'm out. That is not, that you're not reflecting Jesus right now. And I have no desire to be a part of what you're doing. None. But when I meet with somebody and they are, I remember I went to, there was a, there was a concert at First Assembly. You guys know who Rich Mullins was, yeah? Okay. He came and did a concert. He's, he's with the Lord now, but he came and did a concert at, at our, at our old building. And before the concert started, he was walking around in ratty old clothes, handing out cookies to people in the crowd, and nobody knew who he was. <clears throat> just had a big ba- like basket of cookies just walking through. Here you go, here you go, here you go. Just giving people cookies. You're like, oh, thanks. And like nobody knew who he was. And then all of a sudden he gets up on stage and everybody's like, oh my gosh, that guy gave me a cookie, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, what the heck? But I think that's what he was doing is he was trying to demonstrate this thing, this meekness thing, this, this I'm not better than you. Humility, meekness, you know, I, it's this. And people that can do that, people that live in that place, people that are constantly trying to remind themselves that I am no better than anyone else and, and I just want to serve, I, that's, those are the people I love to be with. The people that demand to be treated a certain way, I just want to, I just, oh, I, at this, oh, I, I hate that. I hate that. You know, this is why, and I don't know if you guys know this about my dad, but he parks as far out in the parking lot as he can park every Sunday. Yes. He doesn't, he doesn't tell people that, but he has asked the pastoral staff to park out there also. And you're not ever going to find a parking spot that says pastor's spot anywhere in this parking lot because he refuses to be that guy. And it's just a reminder for him that he's here to serve people. It's as much for his heart as he, it, he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't tell people that and he might be mad at me for even letting you know. But that's just, that's, and that's one of the many, many reasons that I have so much respect for him. He's not here to be served. He's here to serve. And that's what we have to, that's who we have to be. Humility, gentleness, meekness, patience, patience. <clears throat> You know, people say, don't pray for patience, right? I don't pray for patience because it takes so darn long to get here. <laughs> uh, I had a friend that used to say, they, they gave me an award for being humble once, but they took it away because I put it on the shelf. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> they gave me a word for being humble, but I put it on the shelf, and it's kind of a pride thing, so they took it. Anyway. <laughs> Patience. All right, the, the Greek word for patience actually is, the word, the word means long-suffering. Long-suffering. <laughs> yes. 
the guy who comes wears a diaper, and he comes out. The best part of the whole movie, and he's like, "I'm the best person in the whole town." <laughs> <laughs> and then he has a chicken suit on the whole second movie, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Chicken bread. Yes. I actually really enjoy the second one. It's really good. There's a leak in the boat. There's a leak in the boat. It's like ah. Yeah, it's it's really good. Anyway. All right, let's reel it in. Long suffering. Okay, patience, patience is not just, patience is not just, I'm going to give you time to do what you need to do. Patience is enduring pain for long periods of time. That's what patience is. Patience means that you are costing me something continually for a long period of time. That's long suffering. Long suffering. I think patience, we, you know, patience we think is like, I have to wait in line for my Starbucks, right? Okay. No. <laughs> long suffering okay it's not patience patience does not mean you're waiting in line for your your iced coffee okay patience is enduring cost and pain for a long period of time out of love for someone else that's patience patience was uh you know jesus living as a human being for 33 odd years to show us the love of god Long-suffering. Pay attention. Bearing with one another in love. Check this out. Sticking around. Choosing to be committed to one another no matter what. Jared and I were talking about this yesterday with marriage and how it's, you know, when you get married, it's, my wife and I have always said that the word divorce does not exist. We've made a decision that we're going to do life together, and some of that is going to suck. It's just life. And there are days when I'm not going to like you, and there are days when you're not going to like me. My wife has a couple of choice words that she uses for me at different times that I'm not going to mention. I totally earned them. <laughs> I, I do. There are days when I am just a jerk, okay, because I'm a human being. And it happens. And I don't want to be. But she's not. And one of the things that I say to people when I do when I when I do weddings is I look at them in, in the charge to the couple portion of the thing and I say, listen up. Guys, you are not promising to be perfect. You're just promising to stick around when the other person isn't. That's the promise you're making today. You're not promising to get everything right. I wouldn't let you promise that in front of me. Because that's bullcrap. You're not going to do it. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to hurt each other in big ways and in small ways. What you're promising each other is that when that happens, you're not going to leave. That when that happens, you're still going to accept the, the other person. That when that happens, you're going to forgive them. And that you're going to forget. But you're not going to bring it up later. I love Romans 13. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs. That's what it says. It doesn't keep, 
You know, a tally sheet. Well, that's the third time you've said that to me this week. No, love doesn't do that. Okay? And ladies, I love you, but listen to me. You have a much better memory for how stupid your man has been over a long period of time than he does. And, and it is so tempting, I know, it is so tempting to say, to just use that as, as a way to manipulate him, as a way to make him feel bad and make him do things that you want to do and be nicer to you. It is so easy. It is so easy to keep those things that, that he did to you and you forgave him in your back pocket so you can pull it out later and say, well, I forgave you when you do this, so. <laughs> it is easy to do that, but that's not love. Love says, yes, you did something, you did something bad to me. I forgive you. I, I am not. Please, under, forgiveness, once again, means paying for what someone else did to you. It means you pay for what they did wrong. That's what forgiveness means. Forgiveness does not mean I'm going to let you get away with it this time, but you better not do it again. That's not forgiveness. That's leniency. There's a big difference. Forgiveness says you did this wrong, and I'm going to let you know that you did it wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Bringing it to their attention. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But then forgetting it ever happened. The Bible is crazy clear about this, that Jesus takes our sins and drowns them in the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west. That's what the book, the Psalms say. That Jesus, that God takes our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. And do you know that you could travel east forever and, and never go west? So as far as east is from west, that's an infinite direction. That's an infinite. That is how far Jesus takes our sins from us. Now, what an incredibly liberating feeling that is. I remember we, I was praying with one of my, one, an accountability partner years ago. And there was this one sin that he never, he just felt like he could never feel like he was forgiven for it. Like it was just still there, even though he had confessed it a thousand times or whatever. And I, and I just found all these different scriptures about, about this and about how God, once we ask for forgiveness and once, once we confess our sins and we ask him to forgive us, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. That's what it says. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. We are no longer culpable for that Sin, we're no longer held accountable for what we did. That's how the gospel works. And I said, now here's what we're going to do. And I, I read all those to him, and we were standing up at the altar at the church. And I said, I want you to do the, physically pick that sin up off of you and put it down on the altar right here. Okay? And he's like, that's stupid. I said, just do it. So he like, he like grabbed it and like put it down. He did it really reluctantly like... <laughs> I said, now let's walk. And we started walking away from the altar. I said, don't take it with you. It stays there. And the further, we, we got all the way to the other end of the church, like, uh, grounds. It was at the old building. And I said, guess what? That sin is still on the altar. It's gone. It's still there. And you, it does not belong to you anymore. You've been separated from it. 
Because that's what happens. Jesus comes, he takes it off of you, puts it on his cross and kills it, and it's no longer yours, period. It's gone. It does not exist anymore. It doesn't matter how many times Satan brings it back into your memory. It doesn't matter how many times a human might remind you of it. Jesus doesn't even remember it. You're not going to get to heaven and be, and, and it's not going to, you're not going to get to heaven and have this sign over your head, former pornography addict. It's not going to say that because Jesus doesn't remember your time there. God has forgotten because he chose to. It's the only thing God ever forgets is your sin. Oh man, that's good news. God is absolutely committed to us. And so we have to be absolutely committed to each other. Completely. In this for the long haul. I would tell people that I was discipling at different times. I'm here. And I'm not going anywhere. And you can screw up. Any way you can imagine you can screw up. And I'm not leaving. You can leave me if you want, but I'm not leaving. And I'm never going to tell you that I don't want to talk to you. And I'm never going to tell you that I don't like that I don't love you anymore. And that, that's not going to happen because Jesus didn't give up on me, and He's not giving up on me. And I'm not going to give up on you. Period. Yeah. Do you think that um, God would actually forget, like, literally have no? I don't know how else to to interpret those verses. Well, I think we learn a lot from our mistakes, don't you? Maybe when we get to heaven, we will. I don't know. I'm just curious. I don't know. Yeah. The part of that is... When, when we see the things that we have done, that turns into praise to God, seeing what he's brought us out of. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, if we had the ability to forget it, then I don't think we can understand the grace of Jesus. How far he's brought us. And I think that's the whole point that keeps us pressing forward instead of going back to it to remind us, wow, in heaven, scars are badges of honor. Jesus still has his. Not wounds, scars. Verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I love this verse. Let me tell you why. Because it says to preserve the unity of the Spirit, which means we didn't create it. <clears throat> it was given to us as a gift, and it's our job not to just, just to try and keep it. It means God brought us together. God made us one. God eliminated the strife between you and me and between 
us and God and between all of us and each other, between Jew and Gentile, between white and black, between whatever you, walls you want to put up, God broke them down through the gospel. And now your job is to not build that wall again. Preserve the unity he gave you, which is really nice. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me this gift. And God's going, yeah, now don't crap on it. That doesn't mean we don't, because we, we do. The Apostle Paul is saying, God's given you this beautiful gift. Keep it. The Spirit brings us unity. We're going to get into that a little bit more. Actually, it's the next verse. Verse 4. Because there is one body, one Spirit, just also as you were called in one hope of your calling. Again, that's not vocational calling that's your calling out of darkness into light one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all we are one in so many ways we are connected to each other in so many ways we have been brought into unity with one another in so many ways just listed one after another, one body, one spirit, one calling, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. Just a side note: one baptism does not mean there's no baptism. There's no like baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's like okay, doesn't mean. Oh, I was baptized in water, so I can't be baptized in the Holy Spirit because there's only one baptism. No, that's not that's not what it means. It just means we were all baptized into the same Christ. When you were baptized in water, and if some of you haven't been, you should be. When you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ's death. His death became yours in that moment. You were baptized into his death and brought up out of death into new life. That is what happened to you. You were brought in and given, and his death replaced yours. So death has no rule over you anymore. Now that happened when you had faith in Christ, and when you're baptized in water, it's just a symbol of that. It's not like if you haven't been baptized, that doesn't work. That's not how... We don't believe that it's the sacraments that save us. Okay. Sorry. It's, it's right. going down. It's okay. We don't believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. We do believe that you're supposed you should be baptized. Okay. I don't know if we're going to have a baptism day. Yeah, we are. Well, you guys are going to be here. And if you haven't been baptized in water, I would recommend that you be baptized in water. Yeah. What happens if you've been baptized, like, when you were small? Yeah. Like, yeah. Does that still count? Well, I don't know. What was your relationship with Christ like when you were four? <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I mean, truly. It, okay. it, baptism is... Is a decision. Yeah. Uh, my sister, she's five. She like came to my mom. And she was just baptized across Sunday at church. Yeah. And, um, she actually went to my mom and asked if she could be baptized and asked like how she knew if Jesus was in her heart. 
See, it's that when you're at when a child is at that place and accepting Christ that they're that they have a have an understanding of the gospel and they can actually articulate that to you on some level, then they're ready to be baptized in my opinion. I'm actually going to an infant baptism on Sunday of a really good friend. They've asked us to be the godparents of this little girl. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be mean to them and and you know bring my whole theological junk to this moment. I'm just going to celebrate with them. And uh, But I don't believe in infant baptism. <laughs> it is a choice. Yeah. Is that a Catholic thing? <laughs> it's a Catholic thing. It's also a Lutheran thing and a, and a Methodist and a Presbyterian thing. <laughs> so there's, there's, what's that? No, not christening, right? baptism. Although a lot of times people are baptized at the christening, yes. Like, it's not where they, like, I, I mean, I know this, like, are you talking about, like, when they, like, have the babies do it, like, with a little drop on their head? Yes. Like, yes. My mom did that. Yes. Here's the deal. In, in, in churches that believe that it is baptism that saves you, they want to baptize their children immediately or else they won't go to heaven if something bad happened. Do you, do you see? Because they're, they're worried that if they're not baptized, they won't go to heaven if they die. So you would baptize your kid right away, wouldn't you? If you honestly thought that was true. So that's what they do. Because they want to make sure the kid's going to heaven. But we understand that it is by faith you have been saved or by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift to God. We understand that. That salvation works by faith. It doesn't work by water being splashed on your head. Okay? Water being splashed on your head, we actually don't even believe. We, we believe in immersion. Okay? We believe we're going to dunk you. Okay? I'm going to hold you under for a few minutes, make sure you're really saved, right? Okay? That's, that's how we... That's, <laughs> That's right. There's that old joke where you bring them up and you're like, "Do you believe?" And they're like, "What?" You put them under and you bring them back up. Do you believe? And it's what? No. You, put it, you finally bring them up and say, "Do you believe?" Yes. What do you believe? I believe you're trying to drown me. Um, <laughs> we're just gonna hold you underwater. You know, when you see the when you see the white light, we'll pull you out and we'll make sure you're good. No. No, it is not, you know, it's, it's not the water. It has nothing to do with the water. That's why the baptism scene in Nacho Libre would not work. <laughs> Hallelujah! Okay. Wait, when did you get baptized? They're talking and it's the skinny dude. Oh, in the locker room. Yeah. yeah. He's like, I'm worried about your salvation and stuff. <laughs> anyway, yes, he just goes. <laughs> okay, because it's not baptism that saves you. It's faith that saves you. Okay, that's what Martin Luther brought back into the conversation again. He was like, the, the, these things, communion and baptism are not what save you. Because, but that's what the Roman Catholic Church believed then, and that's what it believes now. You are saved by your connection to the church. And that connection happens through baptism when you're small, and that's when they christen them. 
Okay, They're given their name at baptism. That's why it's referred to as your Christian name. Have you heard that? And what... Uh, Anyway, that's that's it's called your Christian name because you get it when you're christened, when you're when you're. Like you get a name. Well, that's when you get your first your actual name. That's no. when they, they they don't have an identity before. They call it. They're not they, they still call it by that name, but it but it's they still call it by that name, but it's that that's when their name becomes really theirs. That's when they become who they are. It's when they're baptized, which is usually as soon as they can, you know. A lot of people will do it at the eighth day because that's when they used to circumcise the boys in the Old Testament. I mean, that's they still do that now. Jewish people do still do that. But anyway, you ever heard of a bris? A bris is like a Jewish christening, and it's when they, but it's only for boys, and they, that's when they circumcise the baby in front of their whole family. Whoa! <laughs> right? I would now. I don't want to go. <laughs> don't do. Ah, ah. Yeah. Why do Jewish people uh, go put like rocks or stones on their gravestones? It's just in memorial. They're just. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> I knocked a lot of those off this summer on accident. Oh my <laughs> not on purpose. It's just if it fall, if it flies across the graveyard, I'm not gonna go get it and put it back. <laughs> You're a horrible person. Right. <laughs> I don't pee on the grave. Right. <laughs> I'm only kidding. It's just a tradition. It's just like anything else, you know. But for instance, like I heard the other day that Orthodox Jewish rabbis will actually bury the foreskin because it's a human it's part of a, it's part of a human body and so it needs to be interred it needs to be buried I had no idea but I, but this woman was telling she's part of an orthodox Jewish family and her father was a moil and that's the rabbi that does the circumcision and they would bury like whole bags of of foreskins in their backyard <laughs> in their backyard I think it's just well, part of it is back in the, back in Greek times, they would put coins on the eyes of the dead person. It was to it was to be given to the the boat the boatman that took them across the river Styx. That happened in Boondocks. They pennies on their eyes after they kill Yes, in Troy, they talk about that. Are they really? Yeah. We're, all right, let's reel it back in again. Listen, we are, we, are, we are connected in incredibly powerful, vibrant, real ways. What? Just ask. No, no, oh my God! Sorry. Here's the deal. No, no, I will. Okay. There's there's a couple different kinds of eunuch. Okay. There's the kind that lose everything, and in that it's it's just a lot like a female. Okay, it's not you know, but yes. Okay. But then there's, but most of the eunuchs would, it was just the actual, you know, balls that got removed. They would still have the rest. And so that wouldn't change how they pee. As a baby? Yeah. 
Spain. Before puberty. Before before puberty. Which actually as they grew up as they grew up their body would not it would look very different than a normal man's because they didn't have testosterone, a lot of testosterone. So there you could tell by looking at a person if they were a eunuch or not because they were shaped they just looked different than a, than a normal man. They were usually a lot skinnier, yes, because they didn't because testosterone builds muscle mass. But so they were usually a lot skinnier and and kind of their face would be a little like rounder and chubbier also because they they're kind of stay in that prepubescent. They're still getting tall, but they they're not shifting to a more you know male form. Anyway, it's gonna yeah. I know, I know, I I've got way too many random facts stuck up in my head. But that's because I, 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 I honestly listen to, like, I have probably one documentary a day that I, I'm not kidding, at, at least one, if not two or three, because I listen to podcasts nonstop. So I've got tons of ridiculous facts that are just bouncing around in my brain. I just told everyone how Unix could pee. Um, because they asked. I didn't just offer the- <laughs> <laughs> Does that answer your question? I found out what a eunuch was. Yeah. We're studying for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In Italy, they were used as singers. Yes. And then they were called the castrati. Read somewhere that it was also used as a form of Roman punishment. Uh, I was like, that's what it said. Yeah, I, I mean, I that was definitely a possibility, but punishment—it wouldn't have happened when you were a kid. Most eunuchs were were made eunuchs when they were. Young, very young. Before, like, before the age of nine or ten. No, they were usually slaves. They, they were usually slaves. They wouldn't be very good ones. They wouldn't be strong. No, they were still strong. In fact, they were. They were still pretty strong. In fact, some there are some armies where the foremost rank, like the most powerful warriors, were all eunuchs. How does that work? I don't know, but I don't know, but it's true. Now, understand? Listen. You got to understand what's going on here, okay? <coughs> Think about in a, in a royal household, okay? You've got a royal household where the bloodline is everything. Who your father was was everything. You also have a not moral culture, okay? And so you want to put big strong men around to protect your women, but you don't want them sleeping with your women. Right? True. So you remove that as a possibility. And that's what they did. I mean, <laughs> in China, in China, eunuchs were like an, a higher class. They were almost always wealthy. They were extremely, they were, they were extremely um, well-educated. They were very important to, for, for many, many years. In fact, up until like within a hundred years ago. And so actually wealthy families who wanted a great position for their sons, never their firstborn, but some further sons that weren't necessarily as important to carry on the line, they would give their children to become eunuchs because it, because it was, it was a, a good position for them. It meant stability. And... It's not, I'm giving you a gift. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, was like, I know, it's coming. <laughs> 
Sorry. Uh, there's, you can't do anything about it. There's <laughs> 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 Thanks, Dad. I don't think so. <laughs> now, um, for instance, you guys may not know this, but Daniel, Prophet Daniel was a eunuch. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not Daniel Ackerman. <laughs> Daniel, the prophet Daniel that wrote the book of Daniel, he was he was a eunuch. Yes, when he was captured from Israel. Yeah. Huh? Because that's what they that's what the Babylonians did to those to the young men. They would take out of he was. It, there's a possibility he wasn't. I mean, does, the Bible doesn't say that he was, but but that's what they did. That's the so he probably was. He very very likely was. So what did they do to the woman? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> they didn't do anything to women because women can't impregnate other women. All right. Yeah, it's on the podcast. Let's talk about the severing of balls. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm just. You asked. I'm gonna answer. His cheeks are getting red. Need to know that. I, I'll answer any question you ask me. I mean, and because why not? Be careful. He's like, what? No, what are you gonna say? I was like, I don't really want to ask this, but how did you even speak? You know? Like, <laughs> apparently, you did want to. They told you the story about how she figured out it was pronounced eunuch instead of Enoch. <laughs> <laughs> no, that one they didn't tell me. Enoch. Enoch. That's how I always read it, read it. I was like, Enoch. Nope. Enoch. <laughs> okay, are we done talking about eunuchs now? Okay, that's good. That's fine. It's totally whatever. It's, it was a very common practice that nobody thought. It's only been in the last, you know, couple hundred years that we that people are like, oh my gosh, why would you do that? I mean, it was just something. That, it was something that happened. It was just something that happened. Yeah, you, you gotta understand. They have a fundamentally different worldview than we do. First of all, our culture is way too obsessed with sex. I mean, way too obsessed with sex. Sex is a tiny, tiny bit, little piece of human life. It is not the gigantic thing that we make it to be. It's just not. It, it is absolutely, and you know, there's a whole lot of reasons why we're there. I think Sigmund Freud actually has a lot to do with it because he started telling us back when he was trying to understand human behavior. He started telling people that the reason they did most things was because of unconscious desires for sex, including sex with your mother. Sex with your father, okay? I mean, have you ever heard of an Oedipal complex? Okay. He explained why a lot of men end up hating their fathers. Is be he said that it's because subconsciously you had a desire to to have sex with your mother. It's called an Oedipal complex, and the reason it's called that is because of the Greek 
story of Oedipus who who married his mother not knowing it was his mother, and then when he found out that it was his mother, he gouged his own eyes out. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, so okay, but but Sigmund Freud tried to he he all of his theories are sexually driven, like all of them, and 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 he's the one. The whole idea of how the the whole concept of how like our inner workings. I mean, even the idea of a subconscious mind is something that he created. And that's totally, we all understand what that means, right? So, and he's formed our understanding of ourselves in, in ways that you don't even realize. And he was, he said very much that we are sexual beings, whether we really understand that or not. And so now, you know, I don't know how long ago it was, it was about 100 years ago, I think, or 150, that he was around. And so now we are an entirely sexualized culture because everything we do is motivated by sex. And that's, but cultures before us, most of them weren't um, as highly sexualized as we are. Some of them were, but a lot of them weren't. And, and we've made it this huge thing that we talk about constantly and that's not how it's always been so anyway rome however was probably maybe more sexualized than we are it was bad huh right <laughs> well we won't go into because unix had stuff along that those lines too that they were considered to be, well, they're either or. And so heterosexual men could sleep with a eunuch and nobody thought anything about it because of what they weren't really a man. So, yeah, it was gross. Anyway. Yeah. Hey, you guys brought it up. I asked you what you were because you had a question on your face. It's okay. I really don't care. I'm not embarrassed by this kind of discussion at all. I'm not either. Um, but <laughs> I know that a lot of people are, last year when we did we we did a few weeks on Song of Solomon. And like half the people in the room were just like, "Oh my God, what are we doing?" <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so I, I mean, if you want to, we can. No. <laughs> it it's those kind of reactions that make me want to. Yes, because 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 it, I, there's a. I'm trying to think of what the name of the book is, but there's a there's a book out that talks about about living on on either end of the spectrum when it comes to sex. That either either sex is God or sex is gross, and that neither one is a biblical view of sex. That the biblical view of sex is is in the middle of that somewhere. That God God invented this. You know, I mean that this was sex was God's idea. It was actually the first sermon I preached as youth pastor of this church. <laughs> it is true. I, what happened was, we, it was they prior to my coming on staff, they had been talking. They were going to do September. September was the name of 
the month. They were going to be talking about sex the whole... The, on, on the, like, slides talking about September was a car with steamed up back windows. I was like, what? <laughs> I immediately said, we are never using that slide again. Never. That is, that is not okay. But, <laughs> well, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, come on. What? <laughs> And I was like, wow. So Pastor Barry said, so do you mind that your first sermon as a as a youth pastor is going to be about sex? And I said, no, I know a lot about it, and I'm really good at it, so I don't mind talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Barry was like, you know, he was like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah, I did. So, so. Josh does a very impression really well. Yeah, do it. Right, let's go, Josh. Josh, how you doing over here? <laughs> you do- <laughs> now that I'm like in pain. That wasn't bad at all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I used to. I wonder if I have it. What? I used to have. I used to have Barry's laugh as a ringtone. <laughs> I think I might have it. Hold on. I think I have. Let me see if I can find it. Kyle Joyce. It's Kyle Joyce's birthday today. Yes, it is. Yeah. No, it must not be. It must not be on here. But I used to have it. Anyway, it is Bill's Midas's birthday. That's true. It's also like probably like four hundred. Look, it's only people we know. Oh, that stinks that it's not on here. Anyway, I had it. Yeah, it is. We're not going to pull that up though. I wonder if I have it on here. Um, but, uh, all right, so I don't even know how we're going to get back to, uh, hmm? see if it's on my ringtones. Yeah, we did it. We did a video. We did a Geico commercial and it was like, it was one of those, uh, the one, like, Kyle was like, was it, a puzzle together. well, it, that was the, that was the, the, like a good neighbor, say Jesus is there. The, yeah, but then we did a Geico commercial, which the Geico commercial was. Uh, oh, that's lovely. The Geico commercial was. Um, does Jesus? Does Jesus? It was. You remember they used to do. Does Geico really save you fifteen percent on auto insurance? And then they would say, "Do woodchucks chuck wood?" Um, but. So we did, does Jesus really save your soul from hell? And it was, is Barry, does Pastor Barry have an annoying laugh? And then we did this. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was what? Fun. How are you doing, John? <laughs> How are you doing, John? Uh, no, I don't have it on here. That stinks. I've got it somewhere. But anyway. So. All right. We've been connected in all these ways. So. So it's one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism. That's how we're unified. Okay, and, he, and he, he's going down that line because now he's going to talk about how we're different. That's how we're the same, is that we've all been included in this way in Christ. But now he's going to talk about how in that unity we, we are 
specific and different. Okay, and that's verse 7. But to each one of us, God, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, what that means is this. It means that within that one body, that one faith, that one baptism, that one, uh, and our unity in the Spirit in, within, a, within that, we are each absolutely different from one another. We are each um, significant in our own specific way. And that's because there, has been, there is grace that has been given to you that has not been given to anyone else. Remember we talked about being stewards of grace? Okay, this is that same idea. That we have been given a grace by God to steward that is ours to steward and no one else's. If we aren't giving it, if we aren't, if we aren't releasing that grace through our lives, it's not being released. Okay, and that's what he's trying to say. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what he means by according to the measure of Christ's gift is Jesus made these decisions. He has allotted the gifts. He is the gift giver. He is the one that gives each person their grace. Okay? Jesus has gone. He has looked at you and he said, through you, Danae, I'm going to release a specific grace to the world. And you're the only one who's going to be releasing that grace to the world. You. And Jesus is the one who made that decision. And then he goes back and he, said, he, he uh, quotes Psalm 68. So therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Did that Psalm 68:18 that he's quoting that Paul's quoting there? And he says out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to the throne, we became the representatives of Christ on the earth and we carry something of Christ. And each one of us carries something of him that no one else carries. That's why we have to honor one another. Because there is something of Christ on you that is not on me. There is, there is a dimension of Christ that you are carrying that I don't carry. And a view of Christ that you have that I don't. Now some of us have similar, like my gift looks a lot like yours. But it's slightly different because I'm not you and you're not me. Which means we all have to really, really take care of one another. Give one another space because this person across from you is a gift that God gave to you to show you who he is in a way that no other person on the planet could ever show you. Think of every Christian you've ever known. Even the people that you're like, oh my gosh, are they even saved? <laughs> okay, as a pastor, I've had... Many, many people in the church that that like want to be involved and want to do stuff, and I'm like, oh, won't you just go away? <laughs> that person is a gift to me from the Lord, and they carry something of God that I don't. I remember I was in a prayer meeting one time, and there was this one. There was a kid in that prayer meeting that I honestly I just had issues with. He was he was stupid, just plain stupid. You know, you meet somebody and you're like, you have no brains in your head at all, do you? <laughs> You know, I, I'm okay. I'm being, I'm just being completely transparent here. You know, you meet somebody, you're like, you are a complete idiot. Like I could tell you anything, and you would believe it because you just don't even think at all. Okay. <laughs> I don't feel that way about you at all, Daniel. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> so, no, but this kid, and and we were sitting in this, we're sitting in this prayer meeting, and I just had a very low opinion of this kid. I shouldn't have. I'm not saying that was okay. I just did. And and he was praying, like engaging with God in prayer. And, and this thought flashed across my mind. Well, what use is it that they're here? And the Holy Spirit just went wham and slapped me upside the head and said, I would use that person's prayer to shake a nation. And I just was like, oh, God, forgive me. I'm an idiot. I'm the stupid one. Because I don't, this is, this person is your treasure. This person is someone, he carries something of you that I will never be able to carry. That no other person on the planet can carry. They refract some part of your glory in, in a way that no one else can do. And I have just dishonored you by dishonoring them. Forgive me. And so even the ones, that's why I love, like, when we went to Tommy Barnett's church years ago, and he has the spe- people with special needs, they sit in the front rows of his church. Said because they are the bearers of the glory of God and we haven't paid attention. It was like, yes. Yes. So next time that kid is being a complete jerk and you just want to slap them across the room, remember who they are and what they carry. Next time your roommate is completely on your nerves and you just can't stand it anymore, Remember who they are and what they carry and treasure them because of it. They may not be carrying it all that well in that particular moment, but they still carry it. They're precious. I find it interesting this is there, that, that this is all, this, this is something, we don't talk much about the ascension of Jesus. We talk about his death and burial and resurrection, right? I mean, we don't talk about his ascension very much. But Paul is saying this is connected to Christ's ascension to heaven. Now, that's because Jesus is no longer physically, physically here on the earth. His physical person is no longer here, which means that his presence is mediated through his body. That's you and me. So Jesus, as Pastor Ron talked about it today, you can erase God from someone's understanding because you're not displaying him in that moment. Jesus is present on the earth through us and in us. Back in chapter 2, we are the dwelling place of God's spirit on the earth. We are the stewards of grace. This is who we are. We are the kingdom of heaven on the earth. You are. And without you, the kingdom of heaven is not present here. You understand that? And wherever you go, the kingdom of God goes with you. That's reality. That's who you are. And that is true because Jesus didn't stick around. Jesus told his disciples, it is better for you if I leave. Because if I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit. I will send another comforter, he said. The Holy Spirit. And he will remind you of the things that I said. He will give you all the things that are mine. 
We have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwelling inside of us. Hello, Holy Spirit. Have you ever done that? I just want you to do that right now. Just put your just put your hand right here, okay? And then say hello to the... Do it. Do it. I mean, do it right now. Say hello, because that's where he is. Hello, Holy Spirit. That's where he is. I'm gonna throw something at you. I'm not scared. Do it. What's good? All right. The only thing I have to throw is my phone or my coffee, and I don't know which one to throw. Oh, there's a candle. I'm not going to do that. That wouldn't exactly. be. I wouldn't be treasuring you. <laughs> okay, Jesus, Jesus understands. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure All right. So understand this picture. It says, okay. It says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Okay. Verse 9 says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Remember back in Ephesians chapter 1 where we talked about how Jesus took, came, took you out of death, hell, and the grave and lifted you up and seated you at the right hand of the Father. This is Paul just saying that again. He's going back to Psalm 68 and saying, see, it was prophesied that Jesus would die. He would go into hell and he would ransack it. And he would take the treasure of God out of hell and put it back in heaven where it belongs. That's what Jesus did. He was the, the, the victor of the battle. He's taking the spoils of the battle out from the place where, where they had been taken and putting them. It's just like, you know, the Roman emperor, emperors, when they would take their army and they would destroy a place, they would take all of the valuable stuff and they would carry it back with them back to, uh, back to Rome. And when they got back to Rome, they would do this big parade down the center of town. And behind them would be all of the beautiful things that they stole and all of the slaves that were there that they had taken from there. And there would be this gigantic celebration of the victory of the emperor over that nation. Well, this is a picture of Jesus who went into hell and took captives out. And you know who the captives were? Let me tell you. It wasn't us. People talk about, oh, we led the captives out. We're the captives. No, wrong. We're not captives. The people that the emperor would lead captive were the defeated enemies. So the captives behind Jesus were death, hell, Satan, demons, the grave, sickness, brokenness. Those are the captives that he led in chains out in victory. He displayed, the Bible says he displayed the powers of darkness to be as weak as they were, disarmed. Jesus went in. Remember when Jesus said the kingdom of hell will not prevail against it? How many of you have ever seen gates get up and try and attack you? Right? He said the gates of hell will not prevail I think the church feels like the church is sitting over here and the gates of hell are coming to get us. That's stupid. That's not what gates do. Gates don't move. People move. So guess it's, it's the other way around. We're attacking the gates of hell. They're not attacking us. We're attacking the gates of hell. And guess what? Those gates are not going to stay shut to us. We're breaking them down and we're going in and we're taking what's valuable to the enemy and we're bringing it out. Back in the old, back in the day, how many of you know that song? I went to the enemy's camp. 
Right? I took back what he stole from me. That's the whole. That that was. Oh my gosh. So you guys, you guys don't, you guys don't know this about me. But I was, I was the most crazy, wild worshiper. Like when I was a teenager, I was. Oh, that kid that always bounces around in the front. That's who. That's how I was referred to. Okay, and that song, "Enemies Camp," was like the one I was doing the war dance. You know, it was just like. You know, I went to the enemy's camp and I, you know, so it was like, I was, I, I was, yes, I was Christian Martin. We'll go there. I was nowhere near as good a dancer as him. Not even close. But give me a couple of praise flags and I could do some stuff. Oh, I'm serious. Did you ever use flags? You did? Why are you laughing? Oh, yes. Flags. A couple times, I I actually smacked my thumb with one of the flags. And nothing hurts worse than that. Which is like, oh. oh, yeah. But okay, let me explain the culture of our youth group at the time. Everyone used flags. Now I would use two at a time, and most people wouldn't do that. But I, but everyone, everyone danced, everyone jumped, everyone was everywhere, and. I yes, I used flags. We would lay out flags on the front of the on the front of the altar every Wednesday, and most of them were being used. I was this crazy intercessory nuts person. I, I, I like I used to we used to have prayer meetings and stuff, and, and the flags would be out during the and and I would like grab the different flags because they each represented different things, and I would like throw them across the room like. I would pick up the flag that which represented the anointing, and I would be like, "In Jesus' name!" and like throw him across the room, like the anointing over there, you know, just like, you know, just I was, I was a, I was a crazy person. For many years, okay, for many years, I actually carried around a hanky that I would like, like wave around and like, oh, totally, and and I used to pray for people with with it, like I would walk up and just like put my hanky on their head. I don't know. I'm still crazy. It's just all in here and not as much out here. <laughs> yeah, you guys don't even know. <laughs> you just don't know. See, I don't even have the hanky anymore. And and does it come out? Yeah, sure. But most of the time now it's in my prayer closet. If you don't dance more in your prayer closet than you do at the altar, then you aren't really a worshiper. And now it's a lot more in my prayer closet than anywhere else. And you don't want to be in my prayer closet with me. It gets ugly. I, I mean, it does. I totally do that. I, I, used, to, I, used, to have, I used to have a samurai sword that I'd pull, pull out in my prayer closet. On 9-11, I was like blowing a shofar in my prayer closet and stuff. So it was like, I mean. No. <laughs> but I wish I did. I would totally. <laughs> I would totally do it. And, like the guy who has like the, the and then take it out of my mouth and be like, Freedom! And then put it in the <laughs> It's my Scottish blood. My Scottish blood is coming out. Alright. So. My kilt, my bagpipes, and my freedom yell. Oh, I'm going to paint my face blue and go to prayer. 
<laughs> Honestly, though, okay, let me explain the hanky thing real quick because that's not, I didn't just like pick up a hanky one day and say, I'm going to start praying with this. Okay, I was, I was in, um, we, we were at a camp and we called it, it was prayer and praise camp is what we called it. And we didn't do the district camp thing because they were not spiritual enough for us. I'm serious. That's how our youth pastor felt like. Uh, they're just uh, district camp. No, because it's just about getting a girlfriend for the week, and I'm not interested. So we didn't do. We did our own camps, and um, we would. We went to prayer and praise camp the very first time, and we Holy Spirit night was coming, and the Lord told me, "I want you to take this whole day, and I want you to fast, and I want you to pray all day, and I'm gonna and and I want you to just cover the campground with prayer." And so it was me and some of my minions, you know, and and we were and we were just we were praying, and and I I brought. A spray bottle with me that I put a bunch I put a bunch of anointing oil and cologne in it, and then I filled it with water and just shook it up real good. And so I was just I was anointing the whole campground with this, just like. And uh, actually, it was really bad because the next year I came back and there was this big oil stain on this one wall, and I was like, "Oh, that was my fault." But anyway, uh, seventeen. <laughs> so I was anointing. We were anointing the whole campground. And and we got to the to the actual room. We got to the actual room where we were going to have service, and I only had a tiny bit of my like anointing mixture left. And I was like, "What are we gonna?" I was like, "What am I gonna do?" Because I don't have enough to anoint the whole place. So I kind of stuck my hands in my pockets, and and there was a handkerchief in my pocket. In my in my I was wearing a jacket. There was a handkerchief in my jacket pocket. I didn't carry handkerchiefs. I wasn't sure at the time where where I got it, like where it came from, because I didn't. I honestly didn't carry. I, I didn't own a handkerchief that I knew of. And this was my dad's jacket, though, so I think maybe it was his. And so I pulled the handkerchief out, and I was like, "Well, I'll just use this." So I soaked it in the rest of that stuff, and then I was walking around just smacking the room with my handkerchief <laughs> soaked on. Okay, and. And then we did like a Jericho march around the outside of the building, and then and then we went inside. And I took I stepped one step in the door. And you got to remember this is in the right smack in the red hot center of the renewal, and crazy crazy stuff was going on. I mean, nuts, miracles, gold dust, clouds of glory, people falling everywhere. Crazy stuff was going on. I'm not kidding. That that was all very very real, and it was happening all the time. And so I stepped in the door and I hit the floor about just bang, like just knocked out in the power of the Holy Ghost. And several hours later, I got up and I still had that handkerchief in my hand. And it was almost service time by then. And so I just said, well, I'm just going to stay in here and just continue to pray and worship and because and, I didn't want to leave. And I hadn't eaten all day because that's what I felt like the Lord had said. And so... I stayed in there. It was me and several of my friends, and and uh, as when worship started, um, I was laid out on the floor somewhere, and and the Lord started giving me people to go and to pray for in the crowd, and I I still had the handkerchief in my hand, not because I want like I just had it in my hand still. I hadn't put it away, and so I was I was praying for people, and I would I would pray for them it was had anointing oil on it so i would pray for them with that with the hanky and 
from that day for the next several years, like I always had that handkerchief in, like all the time. And people made fun of me for it. I, I didn't care. But I remember one prayer meeting, I had I had put the handkerchief down on a thing, and I walked, uh, I went to the bathroom or something. And when I came back, one of my friends was laying on the ground, and my handkerchief was by them. And I was like, did you take my handkerchief, like, later on? And she got up. And she goes, yeah, I was making fun of you, and I put it on my head, and I fell out in the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> 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 I was like, see, it's not goofy, even though it really was goofy. But I was, you know, my wife, my wife was, is four years older than me. Okay. And she thought I was just this kookball flake boy. Like she really did. You know, she, she did. She was a youth leader and I was in high school and, and, and she just didn't. And then when we, we were in masters together and she began to see that I wasn't, that's not all there was to me. I wasn't just a hanky. Okay. You know? And, and it was after masters that we got together, but she's like, no, I always thought you were just this weirdo with a handkerchief. Yeah. yeah. Now it was a very, very different master's commission than the one you attend. Extremely different. It was run by the youth ministry. We were just glorified youth leaders, really. And, um, and it was, it was We used to have, we called, we, we called them Monday mountain meetings because, because we would walk in on Mondays and our director, who was the youth pastor, would just rip us to shreds with all the stuff we had done wrong the week before. Like, they, our Mondays were terrible because we would come in and there was always like, you're in trouble for this, you're in trouble for that. We hated it. And he was a great man, but, but you know, he had some imbalance. And uh, um, I learned so much from him. But there was just, he, uh, kind of that controlling thing was, that was big for him. And we were, the people, the closer you got to him, the more controlling he was of you. And we were the closest people to him, and so it was very rigid and very difficult. And so, uh, in a lot of ways, that master's commission was not healthy. Uh, we started off with 14 or 15 students, and we graduated eight that year. That was the third year of master's commission. It went on for one more year, and then we shut it down. Because it just wasn't, it what wasn't was it good. Called? Fort Wayne master's commission, I think. Hmm. Uh, the Master's Commission, like International, did not exist at the time. So, but we did the no dating rule the first year, and that's part of the reason why some of those people washed out because, well, two of them were engaged when they started the program. And we're told you're not allowed to date at all during Master's, but they were already engaged. We just set them up to fail. I mean, we just did, and they did. But they still go to this church, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. Um, <laughs> he told the story last year. A year and a half. I, I, that, that next year was the year that it shut down. And I was there for three or four months. But I really was, Rachel and I were engaged by then. And uh, I just felt like the Lord was pulling me out and, and I needed to work and make a living and that kind of thing. And so I stepped out during my second year. 
I don't know that that was something the Lord wanted me to do, but that was, things were really falling apart at the time and I just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So I stepped away. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, I did master's commission. So I'm one of you. That exciting? <laughs> and yeah, I married somebody out of masters. So that happens. Yay. Yep. Get ready.